months and maybe years before we started gathering together with the intent to, to plant a, a new church and start a new work here in, in, in Statesboro, I believe, and if I didn't believe this, um, I, I wouldn't be here, um, I believe that the Lord was working. The Lord was doing a, a, a great work. Um, God, we, we might have been reacting, but God was working. And God's work is not in reaction to man. God's work is not in reaction to what man can do or what man has done, even man's sin. But God is always working. And even in the sin and the gospel-denying things that we went through, God was working. God was working in each and every one of us. God was stirring us up. God was keeping us uncomfortable. You ever thought about that? That over those years and years and years and years, how uncomfortable things were? For some of us, it was very uncomfortable for a long time. For some of us, maybe it was uncomfortable for, for a certain t- uh, time being. There was this unsatisfaction with the status quo. And then God began to give us the, the eyes to see and the, the ears to hear that something was not right. We couldn't even diagnose it. Right? We, we couldn't, maybe we couldn't pinpoint it. We couldn't figure out what the root issue. We, can, we could point out the symptoms. Right? We, can, we could have pointed out a thousand symptoms, but we had a hard time looking at the root issue. The symptoms seemed to be the most glaring because they're the things that hurt the most. Those are the things that hurt. And one of those symptoms that we experienced was, was a divisiveness. A divisiveness that, that all of a sudden, as time progressed, given the right circumstances, carnal civility was thrown out the window, had completely worn off, and true natures and true intent came out. Fellowship, friendship that we thought was so strong and so good and felt so right, all of a sudden we're not right. We're not good. We, were, we are one in the bond of the love seemed like a sham. Remember what we talked about? The blood is thicker than water. That was a watershed moment for me, by the way. That's something I'm going to remember for a while. But remember... God was always working. God, God is sovereign over all. That's, that's, our, that's our coin, right? That's what we, we say. It's in our name. It's who we are. God is sovereign. And ever since our first meeting, even before we've given us, we've, we've came up with this name, actually Kelly came up with the name, um, we've, we've been looking very hard together, studying the scriptures together with with fresh eyes and, and, and hopefully with ears that were open to hear and hearts that were ready to hear what the Lord had to say about establishing, shaping, and organizing a church. We were willing to believe that maybe what we've experienced was, was in cause because we weren't following the Scripture. And so the Scripture has challenged us. The Scripture has challenged us over these months. It has, it has challenged our, our theology, 
our theology has been challenged. We've, we've learned things about God that maybe we've never even heard before. We've been challenged in our theology. We've been challenged in our ecclesiology. It was what, basically is what we, what we believe the church is and how the church is or, organized. Our ideas of community have also been challenged. Have also been challenged. And you know what? Some of us are still maybe struggling with these things. We're still struggling with maybe that theology. We're still struggling with that ecclesiology. Maybe we're still struggling with that with that community. Understanding these things is hard. But one thing that we have done, and I, I still can go back to, to uh, what Richard Pilant said um, and, and pray for him. I think he's got a huge job that he's finishing up and does be finished tomorrow, so I think that's probably where he's at in their family. Um, but I remember what he said. He says, I, I, I don't really care. I just want what the Bible says. Like, I, I don't get it. Like, I don't understand some of these things sometimes. And you're right. I've never heard this before. But if it's what the Bible says, I want to believe it. I want to I know it. I want it to shape my, my heart. I still remember that. And this is what we come back to. This is what we've been doing since day one. It's challenging one another with what the Scripture teaches. What the Scripture teaches about elders. What the Scripture teaches about the sovereignty of God and the grace of God. What the Scriptures teach about what it means to be a biblical, gospel-centered, gospel-driven community. And this morning, before we take the Lord's Supper together... I wanted to remind you that God has been working and God is working in our midst. And I want to show you this morning from Scripture the thing that we want to be conformed to of how the Scripture gives a glorious picture of the glory of God through the unity in the body of Christ, His church. How the glory of God is displayed through the unity of His church. What real gospel-driven community looks like. And so the places we're going to look at, the three things that we're going to look at, is we're going to look at how we are united in our calling, how we are united in our conduct, and how we are united in our creed. I've been wanting to say this. Um, uh, not, I've been wanting to say this. I'm going to say it one time and I'll be done with it. Not our Apollo Creed, but our Creed, what we believe. I know it's just every time I kept saying this, like, should I change this word? Because I'm going to be tempted to say that. Um, but no, what we are united in our, in our Creed. So let's, let's look at the Scripture. Let's look at chapter 4 of Ephesians, starting in verse 1. It says this. It says, I, therefore a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body 
in one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. First, the church is united in their calling. The church is united in their calling. Verse 1 of chapter 4 and chapter 4 and so forth begins this series of imperatives, a series of commands now. Now we're getting to the, to the, to the nitty-gritty, right? This is the, after the therefore, after we've been seen, we've been ushered into the, to the incredible glories of God. Right? We've been shown magnificent pictures of God's grace in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And now we see the therefore. This is how now your theology, our theology, this is now how it impacts everything. How it changes everything. It changes everything. And these commands... These, these commands are not simply a, a do right or do better, but rather, but rather it, is, it, is, it is put in the context of the gospel. It is showing us that there is a deeper, richer, glorious gospel in which how God has loved you through Christ perfectly and has brought a salvation to a people who is completely undeserved and also completely helpless to save themselves. A love that's incomprehensible. A love that's immeasurable. So these are not just simply do right. These are in the context of those who have been transformed by this message. They have been transformed. I remember going to a, a conference a number of years back, and one of the speakers there, Ed Newton, said... Um, he asked the question to the students. He said, are you walking worthy? Are you walking worthy in the grace of God or are you squandering what the Lord has given you? And in the same way, we kinda, we're kind of getting that same kind of challenge here. That same kind of take inventory. Take inventory. That's a challenge to, 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 to look, to urge you, to, to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling by which you have been called. Our, our calling goes back to chapter 1. So turn back to chapter 1. Let's, let's read these together, verses 3 through 8. And this is, this is our calling. This is what we have been called to. This is what God has done in His calling for us uniquely. It says, Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be, that we should be holy and blameless before us. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ 
according to the purpose of his will, so that to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Go down now to verse 18. It says, having our eyes and our hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. This is what we have been called to. Chapter 2 kind of gives us the same thing once again, but a very specific message, detail of where we have been called out of and made alive and brought together with with, with Christ. This is our calling. And in this calling, we are to walk in a manner, live life, right? That's language for living your life and everything that we do, every aspect of our life, externally and internally, all that we are, is to be done in a manner worthy of that calling. Not just my calling, but your calling to, to walk in a way in which you have been called. To constantly remember who has adopted you. To remember who redeemed you. To remember who reconciled you. Who lavished His grace upon you. To remember your new position. Your new identity now is in Christ. Not I, but Christ. And he illustrates this for us in this passage here. Right there in verse 1, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. Paul, a prisoner in, in Rome. He's not a prisoner of Caesar's. Not a prisoner of Rome. Not a prisoner of injustice with the Jews. Injustly uh, arrested, but yet a prisoner for the Lord. This is a picture for us. A picture for us what, what submission to the Lordship of Christ looks like. That His contentment, even though unjustly in prison, is one firmly upon the foundation of the sovereignty of God. And submission to God's will for his life. So can we see the, the connection here between our salvation and our obedience? They're inseparable. Salvation by the grace of God produces works and fruits of obedience. Works and fruits of obedience. But it is grace-driven. It is God-driven. So lordship to Christ, our submission to the lordship of Christ, always produces gospel obedience. We all have this same calling. Same grace, same mercy, same need, same Savior. We all are united in this calling, a divine calling. and We share in this experience together. So this is not a calling that's just unique to, to just the elders or unique just to, to me, but it is, this is a calling by which every single one of us, if you claim the identity of Christ, then, then therefore we are all in this calling. This is what we are united in. 
And, and there's, there's no other place like that. There's, there's no other place you can experience this type of fellowship, this type of calling together. No, no club, no group, no athletic team is going to give you that kind of unity. But a calling. And oh how we can miss this point to assume our own ideas of what it means to be unified. And when we, when we come up with our own ideas what it means to be, to be unified other than what the Scripture has told us and showed us what we are unified in, then we're going to come up with our own ideas. Remember the walls in chapter 3? We're going to base it upon our, upon our, upon our, 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 our collective uh, 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 commonality. We all went to school together. We have the same color skin, hair color, last name, grew up together, whatever it is. But we, but we are united in our calling. We have been called. So the church, first and foremost, as we see here, is united in their calling. But not only are we united in our calling, but also we are united, the church is also united in their conduct. The church is united in their conduct. So, answering the question, he says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you have been called. Okay, so I understand my calling, but is there specifically by which the manner of that walk is to look like in light of my calling? Does that make sense? Well, I'll explain. So how do we do that? How do we, how do we walk? How do we walk correctly? Well, let's read the verses again. All right, so I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. If Christianity, Christianity is often observed from the outside, right? And it, and it should, right? The, the world has made judgments about Christianity based upon Christians, right? They, they look at Christians and then they, they wonder what's really going on, right? And, 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 and so... Uh, what we see, and, and I think if we looked at all of our lives, of course we would see inconsistencies on some level, on every level, on some level, at some, some point. We, we are all uh, hypocrites, right? I mean, we understand that, right? So when someone says, I don't want to be a part of a church because there's all hypocrites. Well, good, join us because we're all one. That's, we all, we all, we all have some level by which we say we, we do something or believe something, but we do not meet to that our own standard, Right? That doesn't mean give up. I'm not telling you to quit here. But Christianity is often judged from the outside. And a lot of times what we see, now I'm, I'm going beyond a little bit, and I'm, I'm looking at, a, a, I think, a, a category of people that claim and profess a profession of faith in, in Christ, but yet their profession of their faith in Christ certainly do not match their conduct. Their conduct does, does not match their profession. 
Right? And it's, it's no secret in, in the area where, where we live. It seems like if you, if you just ask somebody if they're a Christian, they most, most, most of the time, 98% of the time, probably even higher than that, you, you will hear the answer, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I went to church. I grew up in this. I, I prayed a prayer, walked Nile. You know, I got baptized here at this church, uh, at that particular church. My, you know, the pastor was there. My, my grandparents went there. You'll, you'll hear all of this. My, my grandparents are buried out there, whatever it may whatever it may be. But yet, when we observe and we look at those lives, there's very little, very little transformation that could be, that could be judged. You know, maybe there's some church attendance there. Maybe there's some, some, listen to me, maybe there is some conformity to some kind of weird American evangelical morality. All people who drink alcohol are going to hell kind of stuff. My dad has this, dad has this joke, and I heard it again this week. Um, he, he says that, uh, you know how you can tell a, a group of Baptists when they go to a restaurant together is none of them order anything to drink because they all drink by themselves. Um, he, he uses his love saying that. Um, but, but understand what I'm saying here, right? There's some kind of external American evangelical uh, uh, morality that people have believed that if they, if they live up to that particular standard, then, then they're good, right? I made my profession. I got baptized by this particular place. I, here's my Bible. The pastor signed it. And, and if I act this certain way, then I'm good. Then, then, then I'm, I'm good to go. God has to let me into His kingdom. God has to. And what we are seeing here in the Bible is that there is such an a, a unclear thing in people's lives, but the Bible makes it very clear. The Bible makes it very clear that we are united in our conduct because our conduct actually looks like something. It looks like Christ. We got the name Christian because we look like Jesus, little Christ. The Bible makes it very clear that that Christian conduct is actually very easy. And so those who don't want to live a transformed life, because maybe they're not transformed, they don't live transformed, they just take the Bible and they spin it back around and they say, don't judge me. Don't judge me. Stupid. Let's not live that way. Sorry. Wasn't really directed toward y'all. That was years of pent-up aggression. But the Bible makes it very clear. Right here, we see, we see the fruit. We see the fruit here of, of, of transformation. We see, we see fruit of, of, of the Spirit, right? Galatians 5 kind of stuff. We see, we see a life that is living worthy of the calling by which they have been called. And the first one is humility. We talked about humility last week and what the pick, what the glory of God does to give us humility. Go through those six things we talked about last week. They're great. Um, it's very humbling. Uh, but humility is the foundation of, of all the Christian virtues. Humility is the foundation. It's, it is the very place um, that, that because of our pride, it's the very place that evil and sin started. And it is the very place that sin continues pervasively. Every sin that, is, that has come through your life, every sin that you have ever committed is because of pride. 
It's come through pride. It is the very root. Right? It's the very root. That's why Roundup is so good, because it kills the root. We kill the root of pride. Humility must begin with proper self-awareness. It must begin with, with proper self-awareness. I think I've quoted this, this guy again, uh, before, but uh, Bernard of Clairvaux said, the virtue by which a man, comes, uh, a man becomes conscious of his own unworthiness is what humility is. Humility is that very virtue when you become conscious of your unworthiness. And that's what we've seen. I mean, then we see that in, 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 in chapters 1, 2, 3. I mean, we, 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 have, we didn't even come into the picture until chapter 2, and that picture of us wasn't very good. It first comes with our with the, our consciousness of our own unworthiness. So it comes with a very proper self-awareness. And this is the beginning of the gospel, an understanding our depth of our, of our need and our inability to do anything about it. Second thing humility does, it involves a Christ-awareness. So now, it doesn't leave us in the dumps, right? We can certainly don't live there because that's not where Christ keeps us. Right? He doesn't leave us there. He doesn't just stomp you down like a father who doesn't like you. He loves you. It involves a Christ awareness, understanding that it's the, the standard of righteousness is Christ. And it's only by Christ that you have been saved. It's the only, the only way in Christ that it can help us in that helpless predicament of our sin and death. So humility involves a Christ awareness. Third thing, humility involves a God awareness. It's understanding of his attributes, his holiness, his righteousness, his justice, his love, his compassion has been perfectly displayed through Christ and on us. Brothers and sisters, we must understand that this root, this very root of pride still exists in every single one of us. This pride will kill you. Like you hear what I said there? That, like I don't use that language lightly, and maybe I do because I'm young or something like that, but, and, and I, I just want to be uh, you know, verbose or something, but, but pride will kill you. That's what sin will do, right? Doesn't sin lead to death? There's sins that lead to death. Pride will kill you. Pride will kill others. And it is a poison that kills churches. You hear me? We want to kill this before we even get to it. Pride will kill it. And it exists in every single one of us. It exists in me. It exists in me. It exists in a way of rotting from the inside out. And this is a sober warning to us men and women that who by nature we're not humble. Be humble. Gentleness. Gentleness is not weakness. Gentleness is power. Gentleness is self-controlled. Famous, famous preacher of the 20th century, Martin Lloyd-Jones, says, to be gentle means you have, you have finished with yourself altogether. Right? Going back to humility. Understanding your place. I'm, I'm done with me. I want Christ. All I have is Christ. Everything that I am is in submission to Him. I want Christ. 
to be a prisoner of the Lord. And that picture, that perfect picture of gentleness we see in Christ and self-control. Who understood restraint, who lived restraint perfectly. You want humility? You want gentleness? Look to Christ, who had all the power in the universe. He had throngs of people come to him and and want to hear him speak and, and hear him do things and see him do things. He had people, droves of people. You're talking about popularity. Talk about Jesus who was gentle, who was humble. Is that picture? You want humility? You want gentleness? Look to the Savior. Patience, long suffering, enduring negative circumstances, right? Enduring negative circumstances. Understand that the Christian life. This life is about waiting. Waiting. Waiting on the Lord. Trusting in the Lord. I'm reading through Exodus right now. People just went out of Egypt and they would not wait on the Lord. Grumble, complain. Wait on the Lord patience to humbly wait on the Lord. Bearing with one another means accepting one another in love. Within the scripture we see what is called the the one another passages. My my friend Greg is actually preaching through these passages right now um, and maybe one day we will do the same thing. The, The writer here, what we see directly encounters us with the relationship of one another. One another. And time and time again throughout the New Testament, Paul uses this phrase, one another, to show how we relate to one another, how you and I relate to one another. Romans 12, I'll give you an example. Romans 12, verse 10, we read it this morning. Love one another with brotherly affection. Isn't it amazing? I I was sitting there listening to you read this morning. I'm like, praise God. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. In four, other, in four places in Ephesians, it also says one another. Skipping down to verse 32 of chapter 4. It says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. If we're not being kind, if we are not forgiving as Christ has forgiven us. And this is what I mean by pride can kill. Chapter 5, verse 18 and 19 says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, addressing one another in what? Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Chapter 5, verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. In this one another passage, we're told to bear with one another. This is where I think Pastor Bill had our confusion when we were talking and he was talking about tolerance and I was looking at it in this way. He was looking at it in a different way. 
I'm not saying he was wrong. He actually was right. And I think I was right, but we were just using wrong words. And since he's a better wordsmith than I am, so maybe I was wrong. So this is not saying tolerate one another. It says bear with one another. First Peter 4.8 says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Another one another passage. Since love covers a multitude of sins. This is that, this is that category here of, of, of how we forgive. This is the category of how we forgive and, and we move on because of love. This is the category of love that is, could be, at times, really difficult because pride wants vindication. Pride wants the other person to feel like I do. Hurt. Angered. In pain. And I want them to feel it. But we are called to bear with one another in love. In love. This is the agape love, right? This is the love that which Christ has and, and, and God has given to us, right? A strong love, a strong, effectual love, non-sexual love, but an effectual love in regards for a person and for their good. It's the kind of love you have for your child that makes you uh, sacrifice so much for them. You go without so that they can have. That's, the, that's what this is. I'm bearing with this screaming baby because I love her. It's the same way in which Christ loved us. And he shows us such a, such a wonderful message, such a wonderful picture in Ephesians, or Philippians chapter 2. He says this, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He says, we have this mind who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is love. And that is the love by which we are called to bear with one another. That's why he says, have this mind. Have this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus. We bear with one another in love. We, we pursue unity eagerly. We are eager to pursue unity because of humility, because of gentleness, because of patience, because of the love by which has been given to us by the Spirit. We eagerly pursue unity in the Spirit and the bond of peace. Not neutrality. We're not going for neutrality. We're not going for agree to disagree. We're not going for a ceasefire because those things are not peace. Peace only comes in surrender to the Lordship of Christ. And if we are in surrender to the Lordship of Christ, then pursuing unity is easy. We accept forgiveness. We accept the apologies. And we move on because we are bearing with one another humbly because Christ has endured so much on our behalf. Our peace is not carnal civility. We don't get along to get along. We don't, we don't get along because we're alike, because we're from the same area, or because we like the same music. Oh, no, no. We get along because of our calling in Christ is the same, because we are unified in that, and we are unified in our conduct. 
Brothers and sisters, this takes work, a work that we must be willing to do. All of these fruits, as I said earlier, are personified in the person of Christ. Look to him. Look to him. Look to Christ. And when we struggle, look to Christ. When you're not patient, look to Christ. When you can't forgive, look to Christ. When you want to be prideful and sin, look to Christ. When you want to be harsh and not gentle, look to Christ. And as much as we want to look at these fruits individually to ourselves, contextually, these fruits are to be lived out, not just personally, but they are to be lived out corporately, together. The church is unified and God is glorified when we live with this kind of conduct because this conduct looks like Christ. Our unity as a church, us, right, us, must have a conduct that matches our calling. We must strive for it. We must encourage it. We must pray for one another. We must, we must uplift one another. When we see a brother and sister lagging behind, we pull them with us. We correct them and love them. Restore them. But the third mark, the third mark, united in our calling, united in our conduct, but we are also united in our creed. In these next verses, verses 4 through 6, we see sort of a, sort of a creed or a confession kind of come out here. It almost sounds like a doxology, right? What we talked about last week, right? It almost sounds like a doxology, but it is a, it is a creed or a confession, a statement of, of sacred belief that, that unifies a body. It's what, it's what unifies a body. Let's read it together one more time. It says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope which belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is over all and through all and in all. Sovereignty of God right there. One body. We are one body. If, if we are in Christ, then we are His church. People from all different backgrounds and and walks of life and and all kinds of different gifts that we all have and gifts and and talents, but we are united as one because we are one body. We are one spirit. We have one spirit. We have one spirit. The work of Christ that has been made manifest to each and every one of us who is in Christ has been made to us through the Holy Spirit. And He has given us His Spirit. And it is this Spirit, this one Spirit, that creates this unity amongst us. And then it empowers each and every one of us to maintain it through that calling. It's the Holy Spirit that that empowers us to walk that life that is walk that 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 life and manner which are which is our calling, right? To walk worthy of that of that calling. We have one hope. And that one hope is in Christ alone. 
We all once walked without hope. We all once were alienated, far off, but now we have been brought near. By God's grace, we were what? We were called from darkness and we were brought into light, into hope, a living hope, a hope that changes everything, a hope that changes the way we live, that changes our conduct because of our calling. We have one hope. We have one Lord. We have one Lord. If you're a believer, then you confess that Jesus is Lord, as Peter did in Matthew 16. We confess that Jesus is Lord. And in the early church, this confession meant everything to them. It was meaningful, because when they were saying Jesus is Lord, they were also saying Caesar is not Lord. And the same confession that which we confess should mean the same thing. Jesus is Lord. Ben is not Lord. Ben is not Lord. This is what we confess, and this is what unifies us. We have one faith. These are, the, these are the truths, right? These are the, the truths of our faith. This is why we now have, and I have right here, copies of our statement of faith. Eighteen different points in, in this paper, our papers here, that tell us what we believe, shows us what we believe. Concise statements that we believe, we confess one faith, unified in this one faith, one belief, one baptism. This means that, that all of those who are in Christ have been spiritually baptized into Christ. Right? We're not talking about the water baptism yet. We have been spiritually baptized into Christ. Romans chapter 6 says this, that we are now dead to sin, but we are now made alive to Christ, raised in that newness of life, that new life. In our, and that is why our water baptism is so important. And that's why our water baptism is so, is so glorious, because it is, it is a picture, a symbol of our profession of faith in Christ and profession of our baptism with Christ and a picture of our unity and uniting with Christ and also our uniting with one another. It's like taking an oath. And we have one God and one Father. Our God is our Father. Intimate relationship there because we believe that we have been adopted into His family as sons, co-heirs with Christ. Y'all realize that, that, that we share the same Father? We, we share the same Father? Do, do you look at your brother and sister next to you and, and say, we, we have the same dad. We're co-heirs. We're, we're different ages. Like, how can we have the same dad? But our father is God. Do we look at one another as a real, true brother and sister? Are you devoted to them? As a real brother and sister? Brothers and sisters, this word is for us. What do we want this community, this body, 
this family to look like? What unites us? What, what, what unites us? This, this is our core group this morning. We will be the ones who set the standard. Are we cultivating unity in this? Or are we cultivating unity in other things? If we're cultivating unity in, in other things, then, then anything can divide us. Anything can make us quit. Anything can do that. What will it be? Will we go back to what we started with and the idea of if it's biblical, we want it? Because the Bible is giving us a clear standard, a clear idea, clear marks of what we are united in. A sincere, gospel-centered unity and love is the only thing that will keep us It is the only thing that will sustain us. What will we offer? What will we display to the world, to those around us? What will will we show what we value? What do we value? Oh, I hope that you see the depth and the level of of this type of unity. It's, It's not of this world. It's not of this world. It's not something produced just by telling each other to be unified or something we sing uh, about, but it is a unity that is empowered by the, by the Holy Spirit. It's only by the Spirit that we can achieve this unity. So I ask, going back to the idea of humility, first point, is that we must be very much self-aware. So I ask this question in light of that. Have you been called? Have you been called? Are Are you truly a believer in Christ? Has He transformed you? Sure, there's definitely remnants of the old man still there. But is he working? Have you been called? How is your conduct? Right, here's the test, right? How is your conduct? Does it, does it match your calling? Does it match your calling? Because maybe the reason why you're, you're unable to walk in a manner worthy of your calling is because you haven't been called yet. Next question is if this is you, are you being called now? Are you being called now? Is the Holy Spirit drawing you now? I pray. I pray now that as we move into a time of response together corporately, I love how we do that that you will just lean into the immeasurable love of Christ. And you would confess and maybe even repent for, for
for not eagerly pursuing unity, but you so desire to do that. Then even when it hurts, to, to do this way, to do this, you know, you know why people don't do this? Because it costs you something. It co- costs Christ everything. It costs Him His life. Brothers and sisters, to, to love like this and to eagerly pursue this kind of unity is going to cost you. It's going to cost you a part of your flesh. You may not have an arm after that, after you walk through the fire with a brother and sister who's gone astray. But lean in. Lean in. Lean into the, to the promises of Christ. Lead into the calling that you've been called and walk in the manner by which you have been called. And as we take the Lord's Supper, let that be a picture of this unity that we have. A unity that is based on our calling, a unity that's based in our, shown in our conduct, and a unity in our creed, in what we believe. And may we shine like stars in the darkness. Let's pray. Father, we pray for these things that we have spoken of this morning, your, your word, that we would be humble to receive it. And that we would be honest with ourselves and honest with the Spirit. We pray that you would do your work amongst us. Thank you for what Christ has done. A a work of unity that is unparalleled in this world. Continue to strengthen that bond of peace between all of us. That our unity is, is found in what we have learned from your word this morning. We pray all these things in in your name. Amen.